I'll launch straight in. We're, we're, we're doing a series here at the moment called One Objection. Um, what we did over the summer was we asked people for what were their biggest objections to Christianity with a view that we could try and answer those objections, have a go at answering those questions. And this series is really focusing on what, what we call apologetics. That's not saying sorry for what we believe, but actually it's about defending what we believe through clear arguments and discussion. And it's where we hear a claim against Christianity and we very carefully and clearly try to provide an answer to that claim. And it's actually a really important part of our faith. And it's actually uh, in the Bible, uh, the Apostle Peter, in his book, uh, 1 Peter, he says this, In your heart honour Christ, the Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and respect. So Peter, Peter instructs us, be ready to give a defence what you believe. Be ready to answer objections and do it with gentleness and respect. So with, hopefully, gentleness and respect this morning, we're going to try and make a defence against the objection that you can't trust the Bible. This was one of the things that actually 24% of the people that we surveyed as to what their biggest objection was came back and said, you know what, I just can't trust the Bible. I don't believe in Christianity because I just can't trust that the Bible is true. Now, many people over many years have gone out of their way to discredit and to disprove the Bible. And some of the people have made it their, life, their life's work. Uh, so Voltaire, I hadn't heard of it until Google. Um, Voltaire was a French sort of philosopher and writer in the 1700s. And he actually said back then that he reckoned within 100 years of his lifetime that the Bible would be a forgotten book. 50 years after he died, his house was occupied by the founder of the Geneva Bible Society and, and the house was filled with Bibles and tracts. People have had a good go at trying to, trying to get rid of the Bible, at trying to denounce it and say that it's not trustworthy, that it's, that it's outdated, but it's still here. It's had all sorts of criticism and muck thrown at it. It's been dissected and studied to an incredible degree. And yet here we are, 2,000 years after Jesus left the earth and after centuries of intense investigation, and we are still reading the Bible. We're still preaching the Bible and we're still trying to live the Bible out because we believe it's true. So I want to spend some time this morning kind of responding to some of these accusations and where they come from. And hopefully we're going to see that we can trust the Bible. Our starting point for that, actually, in, in trying to defend the Bible, I'm going to go for the jugular. And that is we're going to look at the biggest, most outlandish claim that the Bible makes and see if we can trust that. Because if we can trust that, then actually the rest of Scripture suddenly becomes a lot more meaningful and trustworthy. So what is the biggest, most outlandish claim that the Bible makes? Well, it's that this guy Jesus in the New Testament, this guy Jesus who came and lived and died on earth, the big claim is that he rose from the dead. That is, you know, as, as claims go, as things that the Bible says, that's the daddy, that's the thing. That the whole of Christianity hinges on it. As Matt quoted last week, he, he finished his talk with the resurrection, actually, and he gave us a quote from, from the book of 1 Corinthians, where Paul says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. Jesus died... We believe to receive the punishment for our sins, but it's in his resurrection that death is defeated and eternal life with God is possible. Do you know what? A dead saviour is no saviour at all for us. Christianity is broken if Jesus is lying in a grave somewhere. If you think of Christianity a bit like this Jenga tower, 
There's, there's various things you can, you can look at Christianity and try and argue and maybe have a difference of opinion on. So you might look at, I don't know, creation. This is, I'm going to be so careful here. You might look at creation and you might have a different view on creation. You might have a view of creation that it's absolutely literal, as Genesis says, and that it was six days, exactly six days. That's how God did it, exactly as it said in creation. Or you might say, some people object and say, you know what? The six days, they're not literal. It was, it was a perfect period of time, and it was something like that. And you don't have to exactly believe exactly what Genesis is saying. Some people will say, do you know what? Actually, I believe in evolution, and I just believe that God was behind evolution. And do you know what? To be honest, there might be people who believe all three of those things across this church, and yet their faith will still stand. Actually, your faith will not stand or crumble, depending on the slight nuances you believe of how God created the world. It's not like that with the resurrection. You either believe that Jesus rose from the dead, or you don't. And if you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then the whole thing just comes tumbling down. Do you see that resurrection is, it's the game. If, if resurrection didn't happen, we don't have a faith. So this morning, when we're looking at the issues of can you trust the Bible, I want to zero in particularly on the New Testament, and specifically the Gospel writings. And at the end, we'll zoom back out again, and we'll try and just show how being able to trust the Gospels enables us to trust the rest of Scripture. And if you want to examine some of these issues further, clearly I've only got a short time this morning, but there's lots of things you can read. I'm going to recommend two books in particular. So there's two books. Matt mentioned one of them last week, a book, book by Lee Strobel. He's an investigative journalist in America whose wife became a Christian and he was not happy about it. And so he set out to disprove Christianity. And he did that by trying to disprove the resurrection. He failed and he became a Christian. Because the evidence for the resurrection was just so excellent. And he just had to end up and conclude that I believe this. And the other book there is by a guy called Greg Gilbert called Why Trust the Bible. It's actually quite an easy read. It's only, I don't know, 150 pages, something like that. And what he's done is he's read some of the great texts on defending the truth of Scripture and he kind of condensed them into a really helpful short guide. Really recommend it. It's quite cheap on the Kindle, on Amazon or whatever. Really good book, really easy read, but really packed with truth and helpful points. So if you're going to read anything to back up these, what we're talking about this morning, they're really helpful places to go. So let's get into it. Let's get into these Gospels. Let's look at how and why we can trust them. So the first thing, we've got four Gospels. We know them, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. We've got four separate accounts about the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And each of those accounts is different in its tone or its purpose, but they each agree on the major points. And particularly they agree that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he was crucified on the eve of the Passover. So can we trust these Gospels? Well, yes, I believe we can. And the first thing to say is this, that are they backed up by non-biblical sources? Actually, yes, they are. We don't just have the Gospels, we have other historical evidence which tells us that Jesus lived and died and actually that people believed he rose again. The first one's on the screen already. It's by a guy called uh, Josephus. I won't read the whole text out because we haven't got time this morning, but you can see it on the screen, in particular the, the yellow bits I've highlighted for you. Josephus was a Jewish historian. And he, he, he had no cause to defend Christianity. He had no reason to proclaim this truth because it didn't serve his purpose. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah himself. He's a Jew. He stayed a Jew. We don't have any reason to believe he converted to Christianity. And yet, he acknowledged that the, this guy, Jesus, he definitely existed. And he was, he was reported as wise and he was a virtuous man and that many people became his disciples. And he says that claim in yellow there that actually, yet yeah, people claim that he had risen from the dead. And he doesn't say, people said he risen from the dead, but he obviously didn't. He said, no, people, people claim that he rose from the dead and he was alive and perhaps that he was the Messiah. So actually, we're not just relying on, on the Gospels for this account of Jesus. We've got another, another interesting source, a guy called Tacitus. Now, Tacitus is on the other side of the fence from Josephus. He was a Roman, 
a Roman historian. And again, Tacitus confirms, again, he's got no reason to back Christianity up. He's not a Christian, but he confirms, actually, yeah, there was this guy, Christus, Jesus, who, who suffered the extreme penalty of death during the reign of Tiberius at the hand of Pontius Pilate. He confirms that Jesus lived, and he confirms that Jesus was crucified by Pontius Pilate. It's good evidence, good, solid historical evidence that Jesus is not just a myth. There are some people out there who literally don't believe that Jesus lived and died. The historical evidence is excellent to say, yes, he did. Uh, another uh, Roman, a guy called Pliny the Younger, and another a guy called, uh, called Lucian. But they both write in the, in the mid-second uh, mid century, and they talk about the impact that Christianity is having. And they're both clear that, that Christians are alive, they're well, that they're following this guy Jesus, and they have this claim that Jesus rose from the dead. And they're, and they're, they're adamant that these guys, they're worshipping this guy Jesus, that he, and saying he's God. The evidence is really good. The historical evidence right, goes right back to the earliest days to say that this guy Jesus had a massive impact, that he lived and died, that his disciples claimed that he was God and that he'd risen from the dead. Even the Jewish Talmud, we don't have a slide for it, but uh, a book that is part of, uh, of Jewish law really, confirms, and, and in a scathing way, it's, criti- it's critical of Jesus, but he's saying basically Jesus went around performing miracles and and, and we weren't happy about it. And it, even, and it even confirms again that Jesus was crucified on the eve of the Passover. So do you know what? Without even picking up a Bible, without even picking up a Bible and then looking at the Gospels, we have enough evidence to say, well, both Josephus and Lucian say that Jesus was, was lived and was a wise man. We've got Pliny the Younger and the Talmud and Lucian implying that he was a powerful and honoured teacher. We've got uh, ta- the Talmud indicating that he performed miraculous things and that he was rejected by the Jewish leaders. We've got Tacitus, Josephus, the Talmud, and Lucian all confirming that he was crucified. We've got Tacitus and Josephus confirming that this happened under Pontius Pilate, exactly as the, as the scriptures say. We've got the Talmud saying that it was on the eve of Passover, exactly as the New Testament describes. And we've got Josephus reporting about this resurrection and saying that these, these followers of his believed that he was the Christ and the Messiah. And both Pliny and Lucian indicate that Jesus was worshipped as God right from the start. Without any biblical material at all, we can establish that this guy Jesus lived and that he was a significant person with a devoted following who caused a heck of a stir and is worthy of more investigation. And that's really helpful to know. This isn't just a fairy tale. These aren't just some isolated texts in in an old book which people have just accepted blindly. They're backed up historically by non-biblical sources. Okay, so the second thing. What about the the Gospels themselves? Let's, Let's get on to what's in this book, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Let's think about when they, when they dated. Because one of the things people say about, I can't trust the Bible, is that they say, well, look at the Gospels. They were written sometime after Jesus lived and died. They weren't dated from the exact dates. And, and that's true. We know that Jesus was born in the very early part of AD history, and then he died somewhere in the 30s AD, age 33. And scholars will argue about the exact dates of each Gospel. But we, we can date them each to, to within an accurate range. So you see Matthew there, we can date it somewhere between 40 AD, which is just, just a couple of years after Jesus lived and died and rose, and 100 AD. It's the same for, for Luke. Mark is actually, we believe, the earliest written of the Gospels, somewhere between 40 and 73. John would be the latest between 65 and 100. Scholars actually reckon about 90 AD. So they're all written within the first century. They're all written within somewhere in the range of sort of five to maybe 40 years of Jesus living and dying. It's a wide range of estimates. I've not, I've not plumped for exact ones because there's a range of scholarly opinions out there and no one's quite settled on them. But actually, if you read the text, there's very good evidence, especially for Matthew, Mark and Luke, that they were written before 70 AD. And why do I say that? Well, we know 
from history that Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. It was, it was sacked by the Romans. The Romans just wiped the whole place out, knocked the temple down, exiled the Jews. And that would have been a pretty massive event for the Gospel writers, which they would have mentioned, not least because it would have backed up their claims about Jesus. Because Jesus actually predicted that Jerusalem would fall. So don't you think if you're writing a Gospel and you'd said Jesus predicted that Jerusalem would fall and then Jerusalem fell, you'd probably put it in and say, he was right, it happened. None of them mention it, which gives us a really good indication. Actually, at the time these Gospels are written, Jerusalem hasn't fallen yet, which means we can date them likely before 70 AD. So worst case scenario, I think we're on fairly safe ground to, to assume that Gospels are written within 20 to 30 years of Jesus' life, and probably, possibly much sooner. Now that may still sound like a long time, 20 to 30 years between something happening and, and it being written about. But we need to remember what these texts are. Okay? They're not news articles, they're not tweets or Facebook posts, they're biographies written by eyewitnesses or compiling eyewitness accounts about a man's life. I don't know about the last biography you read. The last one I read was about a guy called Dixie Dean. He was a footballer. Surprise, surprise. He played for Everton. Even bigger surprise. And he was the greatest footballer that ever lived. He, uh, he, no one has scored more goals in a, in a season than Dixie Dean. 60 goals in a league season. It will never be beaten. Incredible man. Now, here's the thing about Dixie Dean. He was born in 1907. And he broke the record for goal scoring in the Premier in not the Premier League, whatever the league was back then, in, in about nine, thank you, in about 1927. And he died in 1980. Okay. Now this book was written by a guy called John Keith in 2001. So 21 years after Dixie Dean died, and ooh, 80 odd years, 70 odd years after he scored 60 goals in a season. Can I trust it? Is this reliable as evidence of Dixie Dean? Or, do, or because it was written so long after he lived and died, do I just have to chuck it out? No, of course I can trust it. It's a biography. It's compiled of eyewitness accounts, of news stories, of, of people who are close to him. It's full of quotes from, from, from contemporaries of Dixie Dean who tell us about his life and his story. And I can trust it because it's historically reliable. Looking back at his life, it doesn't matter whether it was written 20 years after his life, even 50, 100 years after his life, because the source material is reliable. And it's the same with the Gospels. They're biographies, not news stories. The people who wrote the Gospels went around interviewing people, asking people, tell us about Jesus, tell us about your experience of him, and compiled them into reliable accounts. That's what they are. So we can trust them. It doesn't matter that they were 10, 15, 20, even 100 years after he, was, he, he lived. The style of the writing is biographical, which means it can be trusted. And you know what? If you think about it, for the, the people writing, the followers of Jesus, there was a heck of a lot going on for them in the immediate aftermath of Jesus' death and resurrection. You know, probably the first thought in their mind probably wasn't, I better sit down and write about this. Actually, the first thought was, I need to tell everyone about this. I need to get out there and preach the gospel as exactly as Jesus commanded. And actually, also, for some of them, I need to run for my life because they were under incredible danger. So actually, sitting down and writing, a, you know, which was a, a long process in those days, wouldn't have been the first thing on their minds. It came later when things had settled down a bit, when they could look back and say, let's get this written down as an orderly account. So, the Gospels are dated, I think, within a very reasonable time frame after Jesus' life and death. So the next question that people say, okay, if, we'll, we'll accept that. We'll accept that the Gospels are written you know, early enough. But we don't have the actual original copies of the Gospel. We don't have the very first copy of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. They've been lost to history. And that's a fair, it's a fair comment, but with a big but. So for each one there, you can see the, the earliest and latest possible dates in the books, and then the earliest surviving manuscript copy of those Gospels. So for 
uh, for Matthew, you know, if, if we give it a date of 40, then the earliest surviving manuscript is actually 110 years after, uh, 150. The closest gap we've got is John. His his gospel said we, we think it was written about 90 AD. The earliest copy we have is 125 AD. So people say, look, if we haven't got the original copy and we've only got copies, how can we know that these copies are accurate? How can we know that what is said in the copies we do have is actually what it's said in the original? How do we know actually that the resurrection was in the original? Maybe John and Matthew, Mark and Luke all wrote accounts that didn't have the original and someone added them in later. Well, I can see the point, but actually, first thing to say is, is to not have the original copy is absolutely the norm for that time of, of history. In fact, the gospel far beats any other historical document of that time in terms of the, 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 the date between the original and the actual earliest copy we have. Here's a few examples. So John's gospel, we've got a gap there of 35 years between the earliest manuscript we have and the actual date we know it was written. Julius Caesar wrote a, a set of documents called uh, the Gallic Wars and they, they told the story of his, um, his conquest of Gaul. That's it, thank you. We know that he wrote that around 58 BC the, uh, and it's, it's treated as absolute history. Like His documents are trusted as reliable, yet the earliest copy we have dates from 900 AD. It's a gap of over 900 years between the original and the first copy we actually have. And yet historians say, no, that's absolutely trustworthy. That's fine. We, we, we trust the contents. The same for Tacitus. We talked about Tacitus a bit earlier. He had two documents that he wrote in the first century, one called History, one called Annals. And the gaps between the date we know he wrote them and the date of the earliest copy we have, 800 and 1100 years respectively. And yet you won't find a historian anywhere saying, that's not reliable. There's too big a gap there. Actually, the New Testament, the Gospels compare extremely favourably. Uh, to, to those other historical doctrines which are absolutely treated as, as factual. So I don't think we have to worry about the gap between the, the earliest date we know it was written and the earliest copy we have. The next thing then, but let, 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 let's, let's, let's carry on with this theme though. Does the fact that we only have a copy make it less reliable than having the original manuscript? Again, it's a fair question. I, I understand why people ask this. Well, the first thing to say is books and manuscripts lasted a heck of a long time in those days. So on average, if you had a manuscript, you, would, you wouldn't just keep it, you would use it regularly for between 100 and 150 years. In fact, some documents were in use for up to 600 years. They were very, very well looked after and they were used heavily. That meant there was lots and lots of time for people to make copies, accurate copies, and get them out into circulation. Don't forget, there's no printing press. You can't just photocopy it, you can't just stick it on a scanner. So we've been confident that the Gospel manuscripts, the original copies, the first copy written by Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, would have been around long enough to be copied and used well. But what about that copying process? Aren't copies potentially less reliable than originals? What if, as I said, that resurrection story wasn't in the originals, it was added later? Well, the reason we can be confident that what we have is, is a very accurate reading of the original is because of the process, what we call textual criticism. Now, if you're a theologian in the room, you just got very excited at hearing that. If you're not, don't worry about it, I will explain it. Textual criticism. Let me give you a scenario. I borrowed this from a guy called Adrian Holloway, another preacher, but it's really helpful. This, this kind of explains what textual criticism is and, and how we can, we can use it well. So imagine you've got an Aunt Sally, or an Aunt Sally if you're from the South. An Aunt Sally, or Aunt Sally, whatever you want to call her, Sally, uh, has discovered the secret to perpetual youth. And actually, the secret of perpetual youth is in a recipe for some special chocolate brownies. And so this recipe becomes a closely guarded secret, okay? She's got one copy, it's handwritten, it's her copy, that's all she's got. But she dis now, she's a bit of a Luddite, as Aunt Sally, so she doesn't have a PC or a phone or a, or a copier. 
So she hand writes out three word-for-word exact copies of her original recipe. And she gives them to her three closest friends. So now we have four copies of the original recipe in existence. And sadly, one day, Aunt Sally's dog eats her original copy. And in a panic, she contacts her, contacts her three best friends, who each tell her that sadly, they too have had similar problems. So one has accidentally lost their copy during a house move two years ago. Another inexplicably just threw hers away. And the third had her copy destroyed in a house fire. So Aunt Sally breaks down in tears. Every copy of this recipe for perpetual youth is lost. But it's at this point that each of her three friends make a confession to Aunt Sally. They say, Sally, we don't know how to tell you. We know we weren't supposed to do this. But before we lost our own recipes, we each made 10 copies and gave those copies to our 10 best friends. And rather than being angry, Sally is delighted because she knows there's now 30 handwritten copies of this recipe in existence. And so she invites all of those 30 people to come to her house and to look at these copies together. They get there and she lays each of the 30 copies on the carpet and she starts to compare them. And she finds that of those 30 copies, 27 copies are word for word exactly the same. But document 14 and document 17 of the 30 have a couple of phrases that none of the others have. In document 14, it's been added, then let the brownies stand to cool. And in document 17, it's been added, let stand. And in document 21, there's an extra comma that wasn't there in the others, and an extra word and that wasn't there in the others, that the other 29 copies don't have. So, do you think that Aunt Sally can accurately reconstruct the original text of her recipe from these 30 copies? I think she can. Because she's got 27 copies that absolutely agree with each other, word for word, 100%. And so she can say with confidence, this is my original recipe. I can construct it from the copies. And in a nutshell, that is the process of textual criticism, which has been applied to the manuscripts we have of the Bible. And you know what? We don't just have 30 handwritten copies of of New Testament uh, scriptures We have 5,686 Greek manuscripts containing New Testament fragments. We have 10,000 Latin manuscripts containing New Testament fragments. We have 8,000 Ethiopic, Slavic and Armenian uh, language copies of, of manuscripts. And between all of them, they've been compared painstakingly to ensure that we can get an accurate picture of what the original said. A huge amount of work has gone into this comparing them, forensically analysing them, looking for the variations. And do you know what? Where they find variations that can't be reconciled, if you read your Bible, if you look in the footnotes and the columns, you'll find them listed. They're not hidden. No one's saying, we better sweep that under the carpet. They're listed. If they're not sure, they just say, look, some versions say this and some versions say this. We can't be 100% sure. And they're just honest about it. It's been an incredibly detailed forensic process. I got this from a, a website, a guy called Ravi Zacharias, who's one of the great Christian apologists. I actually had the privilege of hearing him speak live yesterday. He says this, Lay people, i.e. people who aren't Christians, are usually unaware that the scrupulous scholarly work achieved by modern biblical criticism and represented by scrupulous academics' work over about 300 years belongs among the greatest intellectual achievements of the human race. Has any of the great world religions outside of the Jewish Christian tradition investigated its own foundations and its own history so thoroughly and so impartially. None of them has remotely approached this. The Bible is far and away the most studied book in world literature. I believe we can be 
very, very confident that what we have in our scriptures is accurate, is faithful to the original text, and, and, and is trustworthy. So, in answer to this question, if you can't trust the Bible, I think we, we've got to a point where we can say, well, actually, we believe that what we've got here is accurate, is faithful to the originals, is dated to within a, within a, a reasonable time frame to, to the events that happened, and is worthy of some trust. Then we have to actually consider what it says. We can agree that the manuscripts and the texts are authentic, but can we actually take the content seriously? What about this claim that Jesus rose from the dead? Because it sounds very far-fetched, doesn't it? That a man would die and then miraculously, under his own steam, come back to life. I've heard some people say to me that, you know what, I would believe Christianity more readily if God had sent Jesus in the 20th century, when there was video cameras and photographs and, and all sorts of other things, where we could prove beyond doubt that he is alive and well again. If he come now, I'd, I'd believe it, because I'd, I'd have the evidence well, personally, that doesn't really hold much weight with me. Do you know, we live in a society where one in six people believe the moon landing didn't happen. We live in a society where 10% of Americans don't believe that global warming is occurring. We live in a society where the German people don't believe that Jeff Hurst scored a goal at Wembley in 1966, <laughs> despite the myriad pieces of evidence and the, goals, uh, the cameras and the, and the photos. Whenever this would have happened, I believe people would have thrown scepticism at it and chosen not to believe it because it's a big claim. We can only work on the evidence we have, and we can only make as rational a judgment as possible. We're faced with an empty tomb. We're faced with a lack of a body, both when Jesus resurrected and when Jesus is claimed to have ascended. At no point has anyone been able to present a body and say, no, no, he is dead, here he is. So we have to be able to give an answer for that somehow. If you're going to claim that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and he didn't ascend to heaven, show us a body. No one's been able to. In addition to the Gospels, there's strong evidence to support the resurrection appearances of Jesus as being claimed right from the time that they're supposed to happen. This is the writing of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. He says this, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now these words of Peter, the book of 1 Corinthians, are dated to 55 AD. So we're talking about 20 years just after Jesus died. Now note the important point here. He's saying to the Corinthians, guys, he appeared to over 500 people, and most of them are still alive. If you don't believe me, ask them. There are eyewitnesses available. They will tell you word for word what happened. They will, they will swear that they met the risen Lord Jesus. You don't make a claim like that if you've got doubts. You don't make a claim like that if you think, actually, some people might be wobbling here. Some people might maybe not have seen him. No, he's confident. I've met many of these people myself. I know that their testimony is genuine. Go and ask them. That's within 20 years of Jesus' death. But the, the, the text there in yellow, that is actually believed to be a creedal statement, i.e. something that, that the early Christians learnt and repeated and handed down to each other, and it dates back to 35 AD. 35 to 38 AD. It dates back to the, right around the time that Jesus is believed to have resurrected. That means it wasn't an add-on 20 years later. No one suddenly decided 20 years later, you know what, we'd make the story of Jesus more believable. Let's say he rose from the dead. No, from the very start, the very start of, of Christianity, this claim that Jesus rose from the dead was central to Christianity. It was preached by living, breathing eyewitnesses who would die 
giving that testimony. So the resurrection is claimed right from the start, but is it a trustworthy claim? As I say, lots of sceptics will say that the resurrection is a myth and it could be explained in other ways. We can't go massively deep into this today, but I'll just touch on some of the claims that are made. So the first one was going to be that the, the disciples went to the wrong tomb. That actually somehow, look, he didn't really rise from the dead. You're saying there's no body in the tomb, that's because it's a different tomb. You went to the wrong place. Well, firstly, the, the scripture tells us clearly that the people who went to discover the body of Jesus was visiting on the Sunday were the same people who put it there on the Friday. The same people were present. But secondly, would that not, not be the easiest thing to disprove? If they'd tr- truly gone to the wrong tomb, then someone would have said, hey guys, no, he's over here. Here he is. He's just in the wrong place. And actually, it would have been hard to go to the wrong tomb anyway because the Romans guarded it. They put Roman soldiers in front of it and sealed it. You will know which was the right tomb. So I think we can safely rule out this wrong tomb theory. The second theory that people have put forward is that actually these appearances of Jesus, were, you know, especially this one where he appeared to 500 people at the same time, there was some sort of mass hallucination. That they all had this crazy, all at the same time, weird vision of this mass, on mass of, of this figure appearing. For one thing, there's no such thing as a mass hallucination. Hallucinations are personal, they're individual, they're based on brain activity. You can't have a mass hallucination. And hallucinations aren't contagious. You can't catch a hallucination of someone else. This idea that of the, all of these people would have seen this thing at the same time, frankly, it doesn't hold any water. Or what about the other claim that, that actually it was wishful thinking? Maybe the disciples were just, they were so desperate that Jesus was still alive that they just kind of started to believe that he was and just started telling people and it just grew and grew and got legs. And it wasn't malicious, it was just, it was just they were hurting so much that they just kind of thought, oh, if only, and then, oh, he is. Now this goes way beyond the limits of, someone, of what someone would wish, wouldn't it? Of what someone would claim to be true, and for so many of them as well. Actually, Jews had the concept of resurrection, but it was restricted to being an end-time event with it happening to everyone. It would have been crazy to come up with a suggestion that one person had gone through death and raised again and come out the other side in, in isolation. Plus, it doesn't explain the text that we've got in the Bible which tells us about the doubts that the, the disciples had. We read the story of Peter and, and the other disciples, and Thomas especially, not actually believing that Jesus had risen from the dead when they first found out. If, if they were just wishfully thinking, they would have just accepted it like that. Thought, oh yeah, great, let's say it, let's do it. But they didn't, they, they wanted proof. And they got the proof that they needed according to scripture. So it seems unlikely that the resurrection were claim, claims were based on some sort of mo- honest mistake. The disciples didn't accidentally go to the wrong tomb. They didn't mass hallucinate. They didn't just wish that he was alive and, and then made the mistake of believing that was true. So the other option is this, that it was a malicious act and that the disciples stole the body, and then told everyone that he'd risen from the dead. Now, this is one of the oldest arguments. In fact, it's so old it's even mentioned in the scriptures, in Matthew's gospel. It's said that the Jewish authorities paid the Roman guards to say that they'd fallen asleep, and that while they slept, the disciples had stolen the body. It's a big claim. You've got to ask yourself, what would they have done with it? How easy would it have been to track down a stolen dead body with the full force of a Roman army, who would have been doing anything to escape the embarrassment of having lost this guy. And how much do we believe that the disciples who, who when Jesus was arrested, legged it? The only one who stuck around remotely closely was Peter. And when he was asked, do you know this Jesus? He denied three times that he even knew him. Are we suddenly to believe that those same people then decided they were going to overthrow some Roman soldiers guarding a tomb and steal a body? I don't think they were brave enough. 
it's a pretty big act of bravery for a group who, who had just completely denied even knowing Jesus. Why were they so afraid? They were afraid because of the threat against them. They just had their leader crucified. What gain would there be for people to make up a story that would just simply put them in danger? They would end up dead just like Jesus was. In fact, we know that most of the disciples at some point in time were martyred for what they said about Jesus rising from the dead. Even as early as as the book of Acts, you see Stephen going in and being stoned for claiming that Jesus was alive and that he was God. We know that Paul and Peter and many of the others were killed for what they said. Would you really do that for something that you knew was a complete lie? If you knew that somewhere you had hidden the body of the guy that you were claiming was alive, what would be the point? Where's the gain? Where's the, what, what good could it do your life? And even as we read in the scriptures, even despite the initial claims of resurrection, we see that the disciples had a high burden of proof themselves. They didn't believe it at first. They wanted to meet him. They wanted to see him. They wanted to touch. Thomas wanted to touch the scars of Jesus before he'd even think of believing it and taking the risk of telling anyone it was true. This idea that they stole the body and then just went for it just doesn't hold water. It doesn't make any sense with what we know about the disciples. So this is, this is the final thing that people say, okay, you might, you might be able to, to believe the other things I've said, but actually we know that some people will say that there are contradictions in Scripture, that there are passages that don't line up when you lay, lay them side by side, that these four Gospels, they're all a bit different, and they say slightly different things from each other at times, and how can we trust that they're true if they, if they don't say the same thing? Well, first of all, these are eyewitness accounts. And you know what? I think it's pretty normal for eyewitness accounts to have differences. Surely when you retell a story, you retell it from the perspective that you've seen it or that the people who've told you about it have seen it. And so it might look slightly different. So a couple of months ago, I was caught up in a bit of a nasty car accident on the Mersey Flow Bridge over to Runcorn. I was driving along in the middle lane and in the, the near side lane, there was a broken down car. And it was only a narrow, hard shoulder, so it was sticking out halfway into the lane. And as I drove in the middle lane, I, I could see, I could sense in my mirrors and see in my blind spot that another car was zooming up my inside, hurtling towards this broken-down car, and I just hadn't seen it. And, and sure enough, just as I passed the broken-down car, thankfully, I heard an almighty crash. I looked at my window, and this other car was flying in the air and landed on its roof and spun and all sorts. Now, thankfully, the driver was absolutely fine. They walked away from it. Obviously, I immediately stopped because I was, I was a witness to this, ac- to this accident. I found that I could really confidently explain what happened to these two cars. I could remember there was a black Mondeo that was on this hard shoulder. I knew there was a white Audi that had hit it. I knew the approximate speeds that I was going at and could guess the speed that this other car was going at. And I was able to, to, to be, give a pretty good exa- uh, description of what happened. But what I couldn't remember was about what else was around me. I was so fixated on, on what was happening on my inside. I couldn't tell you if there was any cars on my outside. And I actually started to, to wonder and worry, maybe I caused this, maybe... Maybe I might have been able to move out into the outside lane, which might have allowed this Audi to come across into the middle lane. She would have avoided it. I was actually quite worried until I started speaking to the other eyewitnesses on the scene who had been behind the incident. They said, oh, no, there was definitely there was two cars in the outside lane. There was no way you could have moved out. There was no way you could have got out the way. Now, we'd witnessed the same accident, but we had quite a different level of knowledge about what we'd seen. I'd, I'd seen something over here. These guys had seen something from behind and I could give more detail. Now, we both, or all of these witnesses will have submitted our witness statements to the insurance company and they will have been different from each other in some aspects, but they will have agreed on, on the fact that this white Audi smashed into this parked car. Are all of our statements valid? I would say yes. 
Because they agree on the central truth. They agree on the main thing that happened and say the big, the big thing that happened was this. The white Audi smashed into the black Mondeo. Now we might have some differences about our level of description of, of what happened around it. So I, I couldn't tell anyone what happened on, on the outside lane, but someone else could. doesn't make their, their description right and mine wrong. It just adds a different level of detail. And so that's what we see in the Gospels. There are some minor differences in, in the periphery events, but they agree on the central ones. Let me give you an example. This is one that is often thrown up in, in objection to the Scriptures. So Matthew 28.1 says this, Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So that's what Matthew says. On the morning of Easter Sunday, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, went to see the tomb. In Luke's account, verse 24, uh, chapter 24, verse 8 to 10, read that yellow bit. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So the criticism is Matthew says two women went to the tomb. And Luke says two women plus Joanna and some more women went to the tomb. Is that a contradiction? Is that fatal to our understanding of what's true in the resurrection? I don't think it's a contradiction at all, actually. In fact, I think it's exactly what you expect when you're hearing a story from multiple different eyewitnesses. Each of them bring in a different perspective and a different angle on what they've seen. And in fact, nowhere does Matthew say that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were the only two women there. They just happened to be the only two women he mentions. Had he said, only these two women were there and that was definitely it and there was no one else, then we could maybe say, that's a contradiction. He says, no, these two women were definitely there. And Luke's claim agrees. He says, actually, yeah, those two women were there, but there were also these people there as well. It's exactly what you would expect from eyewitness accounts. You see people with different levels of memory and detail. And I actually think these differences give us more cause to trust that these documents are accurate. If all of these documents said exactly the same thing, word for word, exactly, we've got our story straight, we're going to stick to it, this is what happened, then you would start to think, this is, this is a bit weird. Everyone's seen exactly the same thing in exactly the same place, exactly the same time with no discrepancies, no differences. You start to think, are these really genuine eyewitness accounts from different people or have they got their story straight and agreed on something? Actually, this, the this level of difference in the, in the accounts actually helps us to trust that this is real. And actually what these people have done and seen is such an exciting thing that of course the accounts may be slightly different and slightly jumbled because they're trying to make sense of witnessing the most amazing thing that has ever happened in history. Would you trust yourself to give an exact word-to-word account as everyone else? I don't think you would. We've gone through some of the objections to the resurrection story and the trustworthiness of the Gospels. I hope we've got to a point where we can agree that what we've got is truthful and accurate and it can be defended. And actually, most importantly, that... The, big, the biggest objection you could possibly have to the resurrection is to say, here's proof that it didn't happen. 2,000 years, no one's been able to do that. So let's go back to this original question. I can't trust the Bible. That's the big objection. Well, I believe, based on what we've looked at, that we can make a safe conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead. We have excellent documentary evidence based on reliable eyewitnesses and scrutinised and challenged probably more than any document in human history. So can we trust the Bible? Well, I say, if we can trust the resurrection, that gives us enormous confidence to trust the rest of Scripture. Because if the, if the resurrection happened, then surely we have to conclude that Jesus was not just a man who lived and died. We have to believe he's something more than that. And the Bible tells us that he was God in human form, who lived and he rose again. I was at the conference yesterday when they said, there was a survey recently done by the BBC and they were trying to prove that more people in the UK believe in reincarnation than resurrection. And actually they were proved sadly wrong. 43% of people in the UK, of any faith, 
believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. That's interesting, isn't it? And yet, only 21% believe that Jesus is the Son of God. How many people do you know who have risen from the dead <laughs> under their own steam? And yet, you know, there's got to be something about this Jesus. We have to have confidence that if he can beat death, then he is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. He is God in human form. And the whole of Scripture, can we trust the Bible? Well, the whole of Scripture points to this man, God, Jesus. The Old Testament. So we throw the question up, can we trust the Old Testament? Well, yeah, because Jesus, this guy who rose from the dead and is God, he quoted the Old Testament at length. Almost every book of the Bible of the Old Testament is quoted by Jesus somewhere. If Jesus, God, puts trust in these Scriptures, then surely we must also. And the Old Testament contains over 300 prophecies that Jesus himself fulfills. The whole thing just leads up and builds up to this person, this God, this man who died and rose again. The very fact that Jesus rose again makes us have to trust that he is God and that means we have to trust that what he puts his trust in must be trustworthy. The rest of the New Testament looks back at Jesus and tells us in great detail why we need to trust what he's done and, and, the, and the truth of it and, and the value of it in our lives. 